morning. I was, uh, I played high school basketball at a class A high school back in the early 80s and I actually was fortunate enough, uh, blessed enough I should say, to uh, have a scholarship to to go to college and play basketball at an NAI level, nothing nothing major. Don't want to overextend myself there. What I recall vividly, hello, what I recall vividly was um, going from being the leading scorer in a small high school team to in college, not starting, on the bench, wanting very much the, the coach to put me in, making eye contact with him and seeing him go, oh, you, go, <laughs> somebody else. Very humbling experience. And that was my existence the entire uh, first year there down on the end of the bench. Well, Drew's not here today, and Jonathan is not here today, and they looked far down the bench. But as Barry has prayed, may God's word not return void today. We are in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, You know the series going through the narratives of Matthew leading up to Jesus and the cross. In this setting, we are reminded that there's a huge crowd. A crowd is gathering up. My mind went back this week to a time when I was a child, uh, born and raised in the Winchester, Virginia area, and and I don't recall how old I was. I was small enough that I know I can remember there's a lot bigger people all around me. And there's just this fevered pitch. People are excited. Everybody's talking. And suddenly the helicopter begins to come and land. There he is, there he is, there he is. And everyone was so excited. It was the president of the United States. And I guess he came into the area. I I didn't think to call mom this week and ask her about that. Uh, I believe it was right there in Winchester, Virginia. And just a fevered pitch. People wanted to see the president of the United States. Now, in our setting, the people are expecting Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem. They're expecting him to arrive because word has gotten out. Word has gotten out of the miracle worker. Word has gotten out of this man who causes the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. We're told in the four Gospels, uh, all four Gospels tell the story of what we call today the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. All four Gospels give us bits and pieces to give us a more complete picture. We're told that he was in the region of Bethany. John tells us that he had just raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, You can imagine the fevered pitch. He speaks forth, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus actually came forth. Word, Word gets out when something like that happens. But we also read that as there is an increasing fevered pitch, a joyous anticipation, uh, just an excitement of who this man is. There is also an increased intensity, for John tells us in John 12 that those who uh, were opposed to Jesus, at that point when Lazarus was raised from the dead, they plotted to kill him. And so we see that in a very real sense, there was never a more polarizing figure than Jesus Christ. Uh, Those who could see he was humble and loved and was gracious, Uh, John begins his gospel saying he was full of grace, and full of truth. 
You know, we're usually more leaning towards one or the other. Jesus at all times, at every moment, was equally full of grace and full of truth. And in being a polarizing figure, he began to endear people to him like never before. And it just continued to increase. But he also brought more opposition like never before. So much so that they plotted to kill him. Now, we pick it up here in Matthew chapter 21. Our text for today is verses 1 through 11. I believe we have it on the screen for us. Good. And let's read God's word for us today. May God bless the reading of his word. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, and the crowds that went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. May God bless the reading of his word. And so we see that as Jesus has been in Bethany, the crowds are rising. I mean, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. He's making his way into Jerusalem. We should not be too surprised of this. For, as you recall, just a few Sundays ago, when Jonathan or Drew would have preached on this particular passage, Jesus predicted and told his disciples, the Son of Man must go into Jerusalem. But not only did he say he must go into Jerusalem, he said he must go into Jerusalem and suffer. And not only did he say he must suffer, but the shocking news of that declaration, that that prediction, if you will, was that he would suffer, not necessarily... uh, by evil tyrants who, who the Jews did not trust at all. He would suffer at the hands of the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders. Now imagine you're sitting there and you hear Jesus say, uh, I'm going to suffer and be crucified by the church. You, 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 no doubt you would, uh, excuse me, would you bring that back again? Repeat that, please. Peter hearing that, basically said, get out of here, no way. And you recall Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. They're expecting Jesus to go to Jerusalem. This is right before the transfiguration. And then in chapter 20, we see in the very preceding verses before this, chapter 20 and verse 17, now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he's getting closer, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles. 
where he will be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. And so now Jesus begins to come to Jerusalem. You know, you, you, got, you got three different people going, that are watching all of this. You got the disciples. He said he's going to be killed in Jerusalem. And it's going to be the church that's going to do this. And they're with Jesus. And you got the crowds because he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're so excited, they're with Jesus now. You know, what else is he going to do next? Maybe he's going to make me rich. Maybe he's going to give me everything I want in life. And word has gotten out into Jerusalem so that when we read the four Gospels, we see that the people are even coming out of Jerusalem to meet him on the winding roads as he makes that ascent to the city of Zion. And so they're expecting Jesus to arrive, but what are they expecting? From the earlier sermons in Matthew and looking through the gospel, we know that John the Baptist, for example, was expecting the great forerunner to come. John the Baptist, excuse me, was the forerunner, and he was expecting Jesus to be the one who would bring in the kingdom. And so John the Baptist went out preaching in Matthew chapter 3, for example, that the one who was to come immediately after him, was one that John was not even worthy to untie his shoes. But then we read in Matthew chapter 3 that John said, Yeah, I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, The idea here of purity. The the one that's coming after me is going to purify this kingdom. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, but burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John clearly believed that the one who would come after him was going to straighten out Israel. Uh, Yes, he would come in blessing and mercy and graciousness, but he would also come in judgment. Uh, Jesus will come and bring justice. He'll make the wrongs right. So the prophet Isaiah had even said that this one who would come would come in vengeance, Isaiah 35. Uh, He would come in divine retribution. And so the the crowds are excited. Uh, They are expecting one who will come in some sort of power and they will be avenged. They are under the Roman oppression. God's going to get those Romans. And this this great political leader, this great deliverer, he must be Jesus, for he's just raised Lazarus from the dead. But as they're seeing him arrive, we, we find again there's this tension. This jubilation, this escalation, but also Jesus is found to be repulsive by the very church itself. He's a threat to the church. Jesus knows that with the fevered pitch increasing that he is going to be uh, wanted, uh, they're going to want to take him as a king. You recall earlier in Matthew it says that he already sensed that they were going to take him as a king and so he departed. So he knows when he gets there they're going to be rolling out the red carpet for him. And sure enough in our narrative we see that they did just that. They, They were taking their garments, their cloaks and laying them on the streets and branches from the trees. And John even adds the detail of palm branches. 
And they're, they're singing and they're shouting, Hosanna. They're quoting Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one the Lord has sent. Now, it was common in those days for the leader of those nations to come on a horse when he was going to take over. When it was a time for war, and he was going to lead them in power, he would come in in his mighty horse. You, you may recall one of the psalmists, uh, one of the psalms even says that some trust in horses, some trust in chariots. These were valuable possessions at the time. You know, we trust in cars. We trust in uh, limousines, those who are dignitaries. They trust in Air Force One to get them where they're going. But we see Jesus here, knowing they're going to pull out the red carpet, does something rather shocking for a leader, the most powerful leader they had ever witnessed. He actually tells two of the disciples to go to the village ahead of them. Now, he's already given these predictions, right? I'm going to, be, uh, I'm going to suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers. Very specific, very specific prediction there. Now he gives another specific prediction. He says, go into the village ahead of you, and uh, at once, you will, at once. You know, you're not going to wander around. Just as soon as you enter that village, you're going to find, you're going to find a donkey. And it's going to be tied. And not only are you going to find this donkey tied as soon as you enter the village, but you're even going to find her coat right there by her. And what I want you to do is I want you to tell them that the Lord needs them and I'll return them at a later time. Now we're told that Matthew writes here in verse 4 that this took place to fulfill what had already been written several hundred years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. And it's Zechariah 9 if you're interested where he said, say to the daughter of Zion, another name for Jerusalem, see your king comes to you. But notice he doesn't come riding a horse. He doesn't come in all of his power and majesty. He doesn't come uh, demanding that everyone follow him at this instance. He doesn't come in telling everyone how powerful and great he is. But he comes in gentle and riding on a donkey on a coat, even more. Uh, A coat that had probably never been ridden, certainly uh, never mastered yet. Uh, Would be so scared with all the wild crowds. And yet Jesus is riding the coat under total control and has the coat under total control. The disciples having already heard these instructions by Jesus before, they go and they do what Jesus says and they bring the donkey and they place their cloaks on the, the coat and the donkey and it says Jesus sat on them. Uh, please, I think Jesus, it's saying Jesus sat on the cloaks, not he was trying to ride the donkey and the coat at the same time. Uh, and, and so the crowd is spread and, and they're crowding the streets and they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Yes, the red carpet, so to speak, has been laid out for Jesus. I, I recall um, just not too long ago watching on television, they had the film of Air Force One coming in and the soldiers there unrolling the red carpet. Uh, this is a tradition that goes back some time, obviously, at least 2,000 years. We use red carpet today. 
They were using their cloaks and the branches in the street. It was a way of showing one has come who deserves the highest honor. He, he is much greater than we, and we honor him. Now, sadly, we've watered that down today. We even use a red carpet at the Academy Awards every year. You know, Let us not diminish what's going on here. They recognize this one deserves the highest honor. And so they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. A familiar refrain from Matthew. He uses son of David some nine times in his gospel, much more than any other gospel. Uh, They're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But at first they started with Hosanna, the idea of save, help us, save us. They recognize under the Roman oppression, they are a people in great need. Uh, They are a people who at times are helpless. Perhaps they recall back to their ancestors under the Egyptian oppression and how helpless they were and how God had used Moses to deliver them. And so God has sent this one who is going to deliver them from the Roman oppression. Help us. Save us. Hosanna in the highest. God, you're going to use this one. You notice they call him son of David. Son of David. The idea here being of one who was not a literal son of David, but a descendant of David. One who was in the line of David. In fact, Matthew starts out his very gospel, chapter 1, when he's given the genealogy, saying he was a son of David. Showing indeed that this one had come in that line and descent who was the rightful king of Israel. You recall also in 2 Samuel that the words have been given to David. Remember, David comes in and he's ready to build a temple. And he says, you know, the other kings, uh, uh, they have their palaces and their cities and other um, countries. Uh, the gods that they worship, they build palaces for them. God should have a house. So let's build God a house. Let's build God the temple. And God says, I know you got good intentions, David, but no. Not now. In fact, I got a little spin on this here for you, David. You are not to be worried about building my house. But in fact, I'm going to build your house. And in fact, uh, your kingdom will be one that will be forever. But for hundreds of years now, there was exile. And now they're under the Roman oppression. Where's this kingdom now? But the people have seen enough that they believe this is the one, the son of David, who's going to bring in the kingdom that will last forever. And they were right. But they were also very wrong. You see, they wanted a mighty warrior. They wanted a political deliverer. Uh, They wanted someone who would come in and create new policies, who would uh, free them from the taxation, someone who would uh, raise an army and uh, wipe out the Romans. Yes, they wanted their hope of freedom. But what they didn't understand was that Jesus came to bring a freedom that was much greater than they could ever imagine. I think of the times as a kid when I wanted my parents to do things for me to bring me, uh, you know, immediate joys, immediate satisfaction. And I would be so ungrateful when I didn't get what I wanted. Totally oblivious to the fact of what they were giving me was so much greater all along. So, too, there is this fevered pitch, but yet there's this misunderstanding. 
They don't know. In fact, Luke adds that as Jesus entered Jerusalem, and they're, they're, they're screaming and they're cheering, and they're waving their palm branches, and he's got the red carpet treatment, that Jesus wept. I mean, you talk about the diverse uh, poles of emotions here. They're cheering and hollering, and Jesus is weeping. Hosanna in the highest, they say. There's just this wonder, verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? It's not like, you know, who is this guy anyway? It is, how great is he? What all is he going to do for us? It, it reminds me of the disciples in the boat. You recall, they're in the boat with Jesus, and the storms are really bad, and the waves are tipping and turning the boat so badly they think they're going to lose their life, and Jesus says, Peace, be still. And the calm, you know, the, the sea is calm. And then it says that the disciples were terrified. The winds and the waves obey him. Just who is this man? In this instance, it's one of wonder. What all can this man do for us? What is our future with this man as our leader? Who is this? And so there are some in the crowds and they answer, this is Jesus, verse 11, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I've I've heard Drew tell you, I've, I've only been here a few Sundays over the last several months, but on one particular Sunday he dealt with the idea that Jesus was called the Nazarene. And, and he was very, very correct in the fact that you know, Nazareth, uh, in chapter 1 of John's Gospel, one of the uh, followers of Jesus even asked, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? It would be sort of like here in Winterhaven, I often hear, you know, we have a, uh, an inferiority complex, I think, a lot of times, because people in Lakeland look down on us. Can anything good come out of Winterhaven? You know, the, the ledger, all the, all the ink goes to, to Lakeland, right? But it might be some of us, the way we look down on, on Dundee. Can any good thing come out of Dundee? And yet they're saying, it is, it is amazing. This one who has raised Lazarus, this one who has done numerous miracles, who fed 5,000 on one occasion, is actually from Nazareth. He is the prophet from Nazareth. Not only is the son of David, he's the one who comes and declares the word of God. He's the prophet like no other. And in fact, we see in the next few verses, I'm sure Drew or Jonathan one will touch on this next week. He is the prophet who is really rebuking those who think they have it all together when he goes to the temple in the very next section. When Jesus even says, do you hear what these children are saying when the children are praising him? He says this to the authorities of the church. Uh, he, he, he is also the cleansing prophet, uh, the cleansing priest, I should say. He's the cleansing priest. He comes in, and in the next few verses, he cleanses the temple. They've made it a, a den of robbers and thieves, totally missing the mission that God had for his church. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. And so how do we see the crowds responding to Jesus? Typically the way many crowds today still respond to Jesus. Sadly, uh, they're rallying around them, but they're still thinking, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? John tells us in John 6 that there were many crowds that had arrived and they could not even have food to eat. And one of the disciples even said, man, we could work for eight months and put all the money together. and It wouldn't pay for these people to uh, even have a bite. Jesus fed the 5,000. 
But later in the chapter, Jesus is telling them what it means to follow him. And it says that many of his followers began to leave. The disciples are wondering what's going on. And Jesus turns to them and says, do you want to leave too? What's in it for me? They don't have eyes to see. Oh, they see. But they don't see the king that is before them. They've not understood. As parents, you've done things for, you've done things for your children, and they've not appreciated it. And you feel so mis- misunderstood, so unappreciated. But I'm here to tell you, we cannot imagine thousands of people in the streets yelling and screaming, thinking they understand. Jesus knowing they don't understand and and us understanding what Jesus feels at that moment. Jesus, like no other, was misunderstood. Jesus was unappreciated. And so, they are fickle, like many of us, too, are fickle. John the Baptist was in prison, Matthew tells us, in Matthew chapter 11. You recall, I'm sure that sermon was preached here as you've been going through Matthew, that John is praying. John is discouraged. John sends his disciples out to Jesus and says, ask him if he's the one he says he is. You see, remember, John had been preaching that this one would come in judgment. It would be this divine retribution. And yet John's in prison. Uh, Hello? I'm the one who was faithful to follow you. I was your forerunner. I went out here and announced the kingdom that was to come. And yet, look what it cost me. I'm in prison. And so, too, we, when following Jesus, find it cost us in this life, can, too, become very discouraged. Maybe even distraught. Maybe ready to pack it in. If this is what it's going to cost me, then it's not worth it. So Jesus sends word back from the disciples back to John. and says, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Yes, he says, he is saying to John, yes, I have come to bring blessing. Yes, I've come to bring judgment, but that judgment has not yet come. It will come later. But for now, you are called to follow me. And following me, the one who will suffer, the one who is the suffering servant, Jesus. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Following Jesus means suffering. Blessed is the one who will not fall away on account of following me uh, because of what it will cost you. Who is this Jesus? He's the one who came to, to usher in kingdom that is eternal, a one who would not come to show his authority at that first coming. Oh, he will. That'll be the second coming. But the one who came to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, What the disciples did not understand, John tells us right here uh, in John 12, by the way, on his description of the triumphal entry, the disciples did not understand. They didn't know what was going on. This is the Jesus who comes to not humble his people. But in his first coming, he comes to humble himself. He comes to take upon the form of a servant, 
take on no reputation whatsoever. To empty himself, Paul says in Philippians 2. And to humble himself to the point of death. And this deliverance that he offers will be greater than they ever imagined. But as we see in the later chapters of Matthew, they don't appreciate it. The same crowd who is crying out Hosanna to the son of David will in a few days, just a few days, be crying, crucify him, crucify him. This Jesus will glorify God like no other. You remember the angels. When Jesus is born, the angels appear to the shepherds out in the field. They say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace toward all men. Jesus comes riding in on the coat of a donkey to show that he comes in peace, that he brings a peace to the world. You remember Jesus' words in John 15? Peace I leave with you. I leave with you peace, not as the world can give you, but only as I can give you. Jesus comes to bring us, if we are indeed his people, we are told in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified with, uh, through faith, we have peace with God. Our assurance of pardon today reminded us that we were at once at enmity with God. And if God would reconcile a people to himself who were his enemies, how much more will he continue to defend us once we are his people? How much more will Jesus continue to intercede for us at the Father's right hand if he's already bore the Father's wrath for us when we were his enemies? God proves his love for us, not that we're great people and he decides to do great things for us. But Paul writes, God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this one is coming to Jerusalem and the crowds think they know. They think they understand the kingdom he will bring, but they don't know. And they will turn on him. They will hate him because he will not come for, through for them as they want. May God give us eyes to see that he came through for us in ways beyond what we ever imagined. May he give us ears to hear that the kingdom he brings is not temporal. It's not a piece of land that they were going to get to stay in with the Romans kicked out. But Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The new heavens, the new Jerusalem that will come down. We inherit a kingdom that is not about a small piece of land over in Palestine. We are going to be inhabitants of the new Jerusalem, folks, that is going to come down. And I was reminded of that so vividly this week as I stood beside the, the, the grave of Diane's mom, my mother-in-law, and had the privilege of leading in the um, graveside service and reminding them that Jesus has purchased for his people this new habitation, this new inheritance, a place where there will be no tears, no more pain, no more crying, no more dying. No deliverer over the Romans could promise that. 
Jesus comes and he makes us his heirs. If we are heirs of God, we are heirs with Christ, Paul says. That is to say, what Christ has earned, it's given to us. And we are co-heirs. What Christ receives at the Father's right hand, we receive. And we've done nothing to earn it. Let us not be fixed on temporal blessings of comfort and ease and think that we are owed these by our Savior. For he comes to bring us blessings beyond this life. And as you find yourself suffering in following Jesus, and you will, for all who follow Jesus will suffer persecution, Paul said. All who try to be his salt and light in their communities and in their various situations in life, it'll cost you. May we be reminded that as we are co-heirs with Christ, Paul said that we will experience that glory if we suffer for him. Romans 8. That as he has suffered for us, and as the world hates him, they will too hate us. Let us not be like the fickle crowds and how they responded to the victor. But let us be those who respond in faith, even through the midst of trials, through the midst of heartbreak and suffering. We sang this morning, Blessed be the name of the Lord. No doubt taken from Job. You recall Job lost much. But the refrain from Job was, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, it is so easy for us to get excited when blessings come. It is so easy for us to be excited when uh, prosperity is given to us. It is so easy for us to want to follow Jesus when life is comfortable. We pray indeed you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would not be like the fickle crowds that we read of today. That we would want that we would want you above all else that we would truly want not just a physical salvation from our mean neighbors or our mean employees, but that we would want your eternal spiritual salvation, your pardon, your reconciliation. And may we be thankful for what you give us in this life. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a privilege of ours to honor him because of what he's already done 2,000 years ago. Uh, They were going to honor him for what they thought he would do for them. They did not understand, of course, the magnitude of what he would do. But we have the distinct privilege of worshiping him for what he has already done. I believe you have a a common uh, benediction that you use every Sunday. Is that correct? Well, let us go today and let's bless others by pronouncing that benediction to one another of what Christ and the kingdom that Christ has purchased for us some 2,000 years ago. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Go today in his peace. Mm-hmm.